0: This could be important when we go to other kinds of applications like surgical, medical applications, rescue access, and the resources to fund the purchase and the use of these kind of, uh, of devices. But overall, this is not going to be as different as any other technological advancement.
1: The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread The Rational View by going to patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. It's been a while. Uh, I've been busy moving houses, so I'm sorry about the uh, intermittency of my podcasts. I'll be trying to put out a couple uh, over the holiday season uh, and then spending some time with my family and then really hitting it on the new year. In this episode, I'm starting on a, a new area of interest, I wanna talk about the emerging field of human enhancement. Technology is now allowing us to modify our bodies in ways that people only dreamed of in the past. We've discussed genetic enhancements in previous episodes, but in this thread I want to dig into the state of the art and the ethics of uh, human alterations, additions, and modifications. So sit back and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do like what you're hearing, I would love if you could press like on your podcast app, uh, leave a review. Uh, it really helps to get exposure uh, from our listeners. If, if you uh, share with me what, what you feel about the podcast, if you want to give me some feedback, come join me on my Facebook group, The Rational View. Giulia Domeneiani is a PhD student at the NeuroX Institute and School of Engineering of the Ecole Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne and a Mary sklodowska Curry New Tech International Training Network alumna. Her research focuses on developing bi-directional human-machine interfaces for augmenting physical abilities, particularly through control strategies and sensory feedback approaches for extra robotic limbs aimed at human augmentation. Her doctoral studies include included a visiting period at University College London and the University of Cambridge, where she studied the impact of a feet-controlled extra thumb on body representation and biological lower limbs abilities. She holds a Master of Science in Bionics Engineering from the University of Pisa and Scuola Superior Sant'Anna and a bachelor's degree in Clinical Engineering from La Sapienza University of Rome. Julia, welcome to The Rational View.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for hosting me and for inviting
1: me. Uh, I found out about you through a a paper you'd, you'd Published on uh, adding a third robotic arm to people and and having them learn how to control it. Um, this is really an interesting um, piece of research. But before we get into the research, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Like, what, how did you get interested in in robotics engineering?
0: Yeah. So I am. Well, I started uh, to get interested into this this topic during my bachelor. I had a general Um, interest in medicine and science and engineering and I started my bachelor and then during my bachelor I started getting more and more keen starting with first with prosthetics and I did a master working more on on prosthetics with Professor Michera which is my current supervisor for the for the PhD and then it was thanks to him who proposed me to start working on this exciting project at the Translational Neuroengineering Lab that I started my PhD. I moved from Pisa to uh, Geneva at Campus Biotech where our EPFL laboratory is based. And uh, I started to get excited in this very new field, which um, actually holds many promises, but being so new also required a deeper understanding. So when I arrived at the lab, there was this project mm-hmm. sort of laid out. Uh, but uh, the the cool thing for me was that it was extra, also, we were also extremely free because everything was really at the start. I started nice. from scratch and we're like, okay, where do we start from?
1: That's very cool. Your bio says that you're an alumna of the Marie Curie New New Touch International Training Network. Could you tell me what what that is?
0: yeah that's an international training restaurant for phd students uh, so we have a general um big project and each of the students works on very different sub projects that all connect uh somehow to to the same let's say goal in it from different from mm-hmm. different perspective and this was was also founded part of my uh phd and part of the study
1: and that's that's robotics as well
0: so this is uh also robotics so this all of this um all of the network was based on prosthetic robotics and um systems and technologies for Mm. for these applications
1: yeah very cool so let's get let's get right into it The, the paper you published is is really extraordinary i think so you had a, a third robotic arm that you just attached to people, like you strapped it on, and then they could, and it said they could control it with their diaphragm and their eyes. Could you maybe describe it in a little more detail? And I've been able to <laughs> to get across here. <laughs>
0: yeah, of course. So we started by uh, trying and understand how people could control this extra arm, and uh, to get to the reason why. Uh, we decided to use, um, diaphragm modulation. So how we can move like, the control of the diaphragm and the gaze. Uh, let's take a step back. So the idea is that we, when, when we want to provide augmentation, we also should make sure that we are not just rerouting a function. So just, for instance, changing your, uh, exchanging your ability of moving one arm to move an extra robotic arm. This wouldn't be a full, Mm -hmm. complete augmentation. We are just like rerouting your functions. And this is especially important when it comes to um, biological limbs, so the arms and the legs. Uh, And so we decided to try and use a different kind of human-machine interface, a different kind of control strategy that was inherently not involving um, the biological limbs. To see okay. if this kind of strategy could help, uh, then we decided to go for diaphragm modulation and gaze because, uh, well, we know that it, here what we what the task that is defined for the extra arm is a reaching task, and we know that is in innate. Uh, the gazing of the target of our reaching actions. So we sort of leverage on that on our human machine interface. Uh, and we use that for modulation because we also know uh, that there are studies looking at the agency related also to intrinsic functions, but also, and uh, for, so from the for instance, for, from respiratory functions, cardiac functions, and so on and so forth. But also, uh, because it's a very simple signal to uh, to record, but also extremely easy to modulate. Like, everyone knows how to control their diaphragm.
1: Mm, mm, okay. So, um, can you maybe describe a little bit more the purpose of this experiment? Why were you... Um, adding arms to people that they control with their diaphragms? What, what's what's the goal, the end goal of this, this research?
0: So uh, the end goal of the research was pretty much uh, mm-hmm. on twofold. Let's say one was very related to what we just discussed. So understanding whether is it possible to control without hindering your biological functions. And then, okay, if this is possible, can people learn to control and can it be used for the task that was designed? And this is what we showed. So, and to do this and do all of this testing, actually, we uh, transitioned from an implementation in in a neuro-robotic platform in virtual reality that was indeed integrating an extra arm in virtual reality with a bimanual exoskeleton that was tracking and providing force feedback to your natural arms so that you have a fully immersive simulation. And this would give us the possibility to test different things in virtual reality before moving to the test with a physical robot. And then once Mm. all the tests in VR, we saw that we're successful. So we moved to the physical robot. We did a simplified version of the human machine interface. And we saw that participants could actually both naive participants. So people that just came in the lab for the first time, they weren't a robot and they started controlling it, but also participants that did several days of training before in virtual reality, they were both able to control the um, this extra robotic arm for reaching tasks. That's the task that we defined in this in this case.
1: So how, how good did they get with controlling this? How, how precise could they, could they move this?
0: So, so they, they they get fairly precise. Uh, so we had different tasks. Uh, when I, when I talk about reaching tasks, we have unimanual and bimanual reaching tasks. We go up to participants that get to hundred percent success rate. On average, we are somewhere between 60, 80% rate, 80%. Success rate depending on the different different kind of tasks. We do tasks also where participants do not have um, uh, visual feedback. In that case, the success rate goes very low. This is a task that we did in in virtual reality. But in general, we see that participants start off pretty good and can also improve uh, throughout mm-hmm. different days. And they retain the learning, meaning that we call them back in the lab weeks or um months after the training and they can still perform the task pretty well
1: wow so people can just add extra robotic limbs and learn to control them intuitively with muscles they rarely use is that that the the result that this shows
0: that's that's also something. It's not really muscle that they rarely use. Like, so we use our diaphragm for everything, for instance, and we use our eyes for for everything. It's just that we are able to do in this case, depending on the control and how the control is designed, we're able to do both things. But in general, mm-hmm. this is also this. It, the the take up message. The take message for me of the research is that uh, carefully planning your control strategy. And uh, assessing all the steps will lead you to the possibility of controlling an actual robotic arm, providing true augmentation to the user. But what you said is very interesting because actually um, there is another line of research that also was taken, like is part of uh, the of the research at the at the lab. Uh, that mm-hmm. is the um, the use of auricular vestigial muscles for and, and the training of people to learn to control our vestigial muscles. So the vestigial muscle, for instance, the superior muscle is muscles that were used uh, like ages ago to actually control the movement of our ear. But these are called vestigial muscles because they're there, but so we don't
1: use them anymore. So they're wiggling their ears to control the robotic arms.
0: <laughs> so there are, there are people that know how to control their ear people that don't but it was shown that people can learn to control these muscles also these muscles still have a representation in the like motor cortex of the brain so like we they, people can learn indeed and it was shown also in the publication from um from wow. our our lab um I was not part of this but it's also a line of research in the lab uh, and this is something that could be definitely used because this is like totally independent from, from anything else.
1: Hmm. So how, do, how long does this, this learning process take before people are getting good with using these, these extra prostheses?
0: In our case, what we did was having participants coming to the lab for uh, three consecutive days. So the improvements we have seen were on three consecutive days and we are talking about a session of uh, one hour per day, more or less then some mm-hmm. of them came back for a four session after a week or after a year. And they also then uh, went to the robotic extra arm or they were the people that just went directly for the robotic extra arm. Um, we do seem to see some plateau in learning already over the three days for some kind of task, not for others. Uh, so for instance, especially for the unimanual reaching, so when you just have to reach with a single arm so only with the third arm while maintaining the other arm in a fixed position, then we sort, we see a sort of a plateau that was not like completely, um, let's say, uh, validated as a plateau because we only had three days. So, uh, but it seems, mm. it seems to be a plateau, uh, while we see an improvement, a continuous improvement in mm. learning when we talk about the bimanual reaching. So going with the actual arm and one of the two arms together. Um, mm. so, I would say that this this also gives us a hint that it clearly depends on the kind of task. They can pick up pretty fast, but there is room for improvement and how many days is going to need or how much training in terms of hours is going to be needed. Uh, mm-hmm. That's going to depend mm-hmm. on the task in hand. Hmm.
1: That's, that's really interesting. So um, you can use this extra arm Three days, one hour a day. You've got now. You're augmented physically. Potentially, did did you try it? How how did how did you find the experience of controlling the arm? What was it like did it, did it feel like just part of your body after a little while?
0: Of course, I tried it because like can you imagine that like developing and everything. So I've been playing, let's say, more than trying with it, uh, for, for a lot of time for, for testing and developing, um, I find, I find it myself pretty, pretty easy and uh, straightforward to, to mm-hmm. control. But mm-hmm. again, I'm also biased because, uh, I, I, I've worked on it for a very long time, but normally also what we see is that, uh, people have more or less the same, um, uh, let's say opinion when they are not reporting, uh, cognitive loads like that are, um, over, over the moon, they decrease with time. So I would say that my experience eventually can be considered just the experience of a person that actually used it for a very long time. Um, it does, you do feel, I, I must say, like, you do feel ownership over, over the, over the, over the arm, because it's fully under your control. Mm. So this is something that, uh, sorry, you do feel agency over the, over the arm because you feel that you are in control of the arm. Mm. Um, whether you feel that it's part of your body, I haven't been working at, in the virtual reality one. For me, at a certain point, yes, but it's true that our participants with that amount of hours didn't report it. Same. For the robotic one, they just spent like one hour. Each of our participants just spent one hour with the robotic one. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I guess it's also something that could depend. But eventually, like this idea of like, is it part of me um, is important. So like it's also all these, uh, all these concepts of embodiment uh, is important. But like more and more, we're going towards an idea that, uh, maybe what's needed to be able to control um, uh, devices like ex-robotic limbs, but also prosthesis or any other kind of these devices in, in sort of this mega broad domain uh, is more what, what has been like defined as um, soft embodiment. So it's more of a sort of a functional embodiment rather than a full, um, more... Like what, what is called in contrast hard, where you have to check all the different uh, texts of the definition of embodiment. So something that it feels like your body, that it feels part of your body, your agency over it, and so on and so
1: forth. Yeah. Yeah. There was there any feedback like to the participants from from the arm? Like, was there any touch feedback or anything like that, or is that something you're thinking about so, incorporating?
0: So we did a few tests so a so, um, subset of participants were also provided with a tactile display when we were doing our tests in the, um, in the platform. So in the virtual reality uh, exoskeleton mix um, platform. Uh, mm-hmm. But we found that surprisingly, that is uh, so opposite to what some, most of the time happens with all the time happens with uh, prosthesis uh, and in prosthetics, Uh The, providing the haptic feedback we provided did not improve performance compared to to no haptic feedback. We have several hypotheses about this. It could be that the kind of task didn't really need an additional sensory feedback over the mm-hmm. visual one uh, being, being a reaching task. It could be that different sensory modalities are needed. It could be uh, several different things. But what we've seen is that what we have provided in that case did not improve, contrary to what we would have expected, did not improve. Um, and this is also, though, something that helped us then consider what to use when we moved to the uh, physical arms, physical extra arm, because as I said at first, like the, the virtual the virtual platform was where we were sort of like playing with the different tasks, different different components mm. and everything. So once we've seen that the haptic feedback that we were providing was not useful, we did not include that when we moved to the use of the physical arm. So our human machine interface mm. in that case was only the one including, including the control. There is another interesting point that is uh, that when um when we see, w- when we talk about the physical arm, uh, this is also something that has been uh, like widely discussed, uh, in, uh, in the field. Uh, there is an inherent feedback that people get from the physical interface between what the, the, the robotic arm or the robotic limb in general that you're wearing mm-hmm. and your body, because it's going to be somehow a rigid interface different level of rigidity but it's going to be a rigid interface so whatever happens there is going to propagate and you're going to have a, a sensory feedback at the at the interface and it's it's been hypothesized that this might be uh, might be as well enough we don't know this yet but one interesting thing that we have seen is that uh participants performed um if we take participants that did their first ever session with the uh with the human machine interface so with the control strategy with the mm. physical robot and with the, um uh and with the uh sorry uh, virtual robot actually the people with the physical robot perform better than with the virtual robot that mm. could be due to the fact that they have an extra feedback uh, okay. Okay. <clears throat> due to the interface with the
1: robot. I mean, there's there are obvious applications from this research to, to mitigate spinal cord injuries, for example. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that people do to, to actuate prostheses uh, for paralyzed patients. But you, you are also, I think, or, or maybe mainly maybe more interested in just enhancing people, like just giving you a third arm. Um, you know, it would be nice to have an extra arm for washing dishes or for, uh, I think, as you said in the interview, is for soldering, you know, you want an extra arm to hold the two wires together, basically, while you're soldering. So is, is that, how, how much further do we have to go to get to a point where this is useful?
0: So I think there is still uh, some... Um some years to go, uh, definitely. And I do believe that there are different applications and different application will require more or less time to be, to be considered ready. For instance, what, what you have suggested is absolutely true. Like research in augmentation can also boost, um, the assistive and restorative domain. For instance, exactly people with cord injuries. People, stroke patients, Mm -hmm. uh, not only extra arms, but extra finger, they could be used. But in that case, we might have less constraints on um, the uh, abilities and on the rerouting of functions, for instance, or on the hijacking of mm, present pre-existing functions, um, but also the same could hold at the end. For me, this was, and for for the research that we were carrying on in the lab, it was also very important as a general, very broad research on um, the impact of augmentation. But it's true that in some cases, and this we had discussed also um, before in um in more of like uh, review work that this is also, this also might depend on the task. If we think of augmenting the abilities of a surgeon, a surgeon might as well be standing and not moving. And so might be using their lower limb to control this extra arm is not as. Crucial hmm. it might be not as crucial to have their lower, the lower limb free. But if we think of other applications, which I think also could be, um, they were a bit the drive of, of this project as well, which are sort of like high risk, uh, scenarios like search and mm-hmm. rescue. In that case, mm-hmm. we might want, uh, we absolutely need that the person is completely capable in all of his functions. And we are—we can provide an extra function. We cannot remove or reroute one of their abilities to provide an extra one. Um, and these are situations where I believe this thing might make the difference because being high-risk situation, it might be the best choice having one single trained person uh, to mm. to make and like put in security uh, whatever scene or. Rescue, rescue people uh, without the need of both, like communicating with multiple persons, managing multiple mm-hmm. persons in high-risk situations. mm
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But your motivation for this is just for soldering mainly.
0: My motivation mainly, I don't, yeah, I don't see myself using <laughs> it in many other occasions. But this is mostly because this is mostly because. I, uh, well, we have a joke going on that every time also we are like at a party and you're holding like different stuff, everybody would come to me and like, you would really need a third arm. Like that's the Um, ongoing joke. Okay. Hold your extra drink. Uh, (laughs) exactly. But, (laughs) but no, I would say that normally the reason why sometimes it's a bit hard to think about, but mainly depending on your job and might be mostly related to your kind of job uh, what uh, or your kind of activities, hobbies, whatever, but uh, what it could be useful for is that the word is designed around us and we were born with two arms. So mm-hmm. there are not that many tasks that actually you are like straightforward. I need an extra arm for this. I need an extra finger for this. Most of them are... Collaboration task, something that normally is done in two, or something mm. that is done, for instance, with some, with a fix, helping older or something like that. But this is mostly mm. because the word was designed around us. It could think, be that in the future something different.
1: Is. If you're folding your your fitted sheets, you need that third third arm there to hold it up. And so, yeah, th- this is uh, this is really interesting. What have you considered at all are there any ethical implications that you can see from from this you know the emergence of human enhancement technology maybe in more in general um, than, than just this particular thing but you know I, I want to explore on this show you know what are the ethical implications of of un, unlimited human enhancement you know we have the, this this emerging technology that's going to you know, revolutionize what we can do have you thought of you know what yeah. the ethics of, of all yeah, these no, things are. Yeah, no,
0: definitely, a- absolutely, definitely. Actually, we, we we partially discussed this in a in a previous theoretical work with um, several several researchers involved uh, from from different universities. So there is clearly an, um, uh the the need to focus and understand what are the ethical. Um, Uh, concerns but also the ethical aspects of this of these technologies especially when we think that they will become widespread and uh, children and minors might get exposed to this so the the main idea for me is uh, it's very minorly like uh, slightly related to what we did. So like how much we are hindering your functions, uh, and it's related to this more in a way that if I am hindering your functions while, or I'm hijacking your functions while using it, what happens when you stop using it? If you're using it for several hours, then when I, when you take it off, are you going to go back to where you were to how you were, to, to your abilities. Um, mm. And this then is also linked to more broadly and in general, even if is not anymore linked to, even if we design the perfect interface that is not hindering anything in general is how is your brain going to adapt? Because at the end you need to, To control these things, you are sort of incorporating them somehow. Um, so there must be some adjustments. There will be some adjustments in your body and in your brain, um, to, to support the control, the control of these devices. And what is important Mm. is to understand what is the impact of this and whether these the use of such devices could have after after effects. So this is definitely something that is needed. Or, well, it's, it's something that I've been discussing also in my in my thesis, um, in my doctoral thesis, and uh, is absolutely crucial that going further, uh, there are more and more like longitudinal experiments also looking at the impacts long term and after effects, not only what are the performance and how good people can become while using the device, but also what happens when they take it off.
1: I think there's also the, maybe the issue of accessibility. Um, obviously the first, uh, as these technologies roll out, they're going to be really relatively expensive. And, and you know, there's going to be a very exclusive club that could gain access to these enhanced abilities is that, a, is that a factor or an issue that you've just, you've thought about or discussed?
0: So I believe that this is not going to be that different from most of other kits. You can think of extra robotic arm that eventually are going to be like 3D printed extra arm. So they can be like fairly not that expensive human machine interface or not. Uh, there are base of sensors. that are not that expensive. Um, I think this is going to depend a lot on on again on the applications. Definitely, so I don't think this is a concern when it comes to people and to how they're going to use them, like single people. Uh, because I believe that at, at first, for sure, it's going to be more like of a fancy gadget or. Whatever, but this could be important when we go to other kind of applications, like surgical, medical applications, rescue applications, where then mm-hmm. is going to be mm-hmm. the problem of having at state level access and the resources to fund the uh, the purchase and the use of these kind of uh, of devices. But overall, yeah. this is not going to be as different as any other technological advancement.
1: Mm. Okay. I mean, yeah, what no, I mean
0: is that I don't think that is anything intrinsic in the device itself or in, in the technology itself uh, okay. compared to, to other things.
1: All right. So uh, as someone who is interested in, in human enhancement and is studying this for a PhD, you must, you're obviously in this in this field of human enhancement. Are there other technologies out there that, that interest you that you see as, as really cool, cutting edge human enhancement stuff that you'd be looking uh, hoping to, to, to get access to?
0: Well, I've been, um, as, as, as you also mentioned at the beginning, I've been working for uh, one year, almost one year, and then in presence, and then we, have, we are still cooperating uh, with the Plasticity Lab from the University of Cambridge, where I had the chance to work on the third thumb. In this case, we're talking about a toe-controlled extra thumb, uh, so is uh, very different because it's it's a finger and it's not is not an' it's not an arm we're talking about toe control which is inherently linked to uh to 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 lower limbs for instance uh, but mm-hmm. um, that was extremely exciting because uh, thanks to the expertise of the lab we also had the chance to study uh, brain changes before uh, related to, to the use of the thumb. Uh, this, everything is still like sort of in process, so I cannot talk too much about mm, this. Cool. But um, that was extremely exciting. Um, then there are other technologies. I think what 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 would be extremely cool. So there are um, there are also a lot of um, there is a lot of research in the US as well. Thinking of like a Professor Assad at MIT, um, they have super cool robots, amazing robots, um, and uh, and I think while even though they are they 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 they're doing a lot a lot more recently on uh, mm-hmm. on the interfaces and everything. But I think we, they, they are still, I mean, they're like mechanical engineers. So I, I absolutely understand that and I very much admire their job. Uh, I think I would love to be able to combine what like the amazing technology they have and try um, to use our sort of our approach to find a way to control. The, the the technologies also they have that that would be that would be very exciting that's cool
1: so you talk about um brain changes and i want to maybe just touch on that a little bit because that's interesting so so when you're controlling these extra things there are changes measurable changes in the brain and how it interacts with certain areas can you maybe describe a little bit how that works or what happens like th- th- does uh, the area for those muscles grow.
0: So there is uh, very briefly, like there was um, like what what I've been working on more recently is actually also based on previous studies in the lab that I visited. And what they have found is that the representation, so the way you represent uh, the the fingers of your hand in the mm-hmm. uh, somatosensory primary area, Uh, actually shrinks, uh, after use of, uh, after training with the, uh, this extra robotic thumb, which is the third thumb designed by Danny Claude. So basically, what they did, they had this extra thumb, they've been controlling the thumb, uh, and training on it, and they were scanned pre and post, and we see a shrinkage in the representation. So, the representation of the fingers become more similar, and this could be thought as being due to the fact that we are sort of like somehow making space for the representation of this uh, extra extra thumb as
1: well. So, and that, this that's is something the is also that you interesting. Up, right?
0: Yes, I was about to say, it's also interesting because also the lab, uh, the plasticis lab is absolutely into understanding the ethical um, uh, aspects. They also actually uh, then tested participants afterwards, and this was not a permanent change.
1: But this this must be going on all the time in in brains as we adapt to to changes in, in in our physiology. I mean, this is must be a, like a natural process, right? We're always adapting to what we use or what we practice more with. Um, you know, people, if you focus on something, I assume that the representation of that will grow and, and others will shrink. So it's, it's, it's amazing how you learn about the plasticity of the brain and how it can, uh, you know, what are the what are the limits to that? Do we, do we know if there are limits to that?
0: Well, the brain is actually not as plastic as as we think and as most like the the broad like research uh um is actually like the the the, the feel and 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 the community mm-hmm. talks about actually interesting like yesterday uh it was uh, one one thing that is often said about plasticity is how uh, you know, like after amputation, you get a full remapping of everything, like everything changes. Just yesterday, it was um, like uh, uh, published on BioRxiv, a work from the lab in which like pre-post amputation, the, the plasticity lab, pre-post amputation, six months, like nothing changed. It was a gigantic study. Nothing changes. Actually, the brain is extremely stable uh hmm. but there are some areas that adapt and uh, these are not necessarily for instance uh, the primary areas uh which are those that are in charge of the um direct execution for instance of a movement but might be higher other areas that are more in charge of the organization of of the of the movement, of the collaboration of, of body parts. And this, yes, they can uh, uh, they can modify, uh, they can account uh, for for the use of different tools or for the use of, uh, or, or for the integration of an, an extra body part. Uh, but I believe that the, in this case is very important because it's something that somehow, for instance, in the case uh, of the of, of the extra thumb so of the third thumb. What, how you use this is different than how you would use a device. and in general also how you use an extra an extra arm is different than how you use a tool if you think like of a tennis racket. In that case you have a affordances so you are actually holding the tool. And you're doing things with the tool. In this case, there is an extra limb that you are controlling to interact with the environment and with your own body. So, it's very important to understand how all of this is accommodated.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting, and you know, I I feel like things are very plastic in your mind, like and and that your body can or your mind can adapt to, to different things. And, and, you know, my experience, like, you know, when you're driving your car, if you get used to driving the car, you kind of know where the edges of the car are and they become like in your brain, you know, when you're backing up or moving into things. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. We are extreme. We are extremely good. We are extremely good at learning. But when I say that the body is not extremely plastic, what I talk about is like body representation. So there is a representation of our body in our brain and that's extremely mm-hmm. stable. Like the fact that we have mm-hmm. two arms, two legs, and so on and so forth, that this is your head, that's everything, yeah. that your mouth is there, and so on and so forth. Your body representation is so stable. But it's true that we are extremely good at learning, at modern learning, at learning in general, and practice driven learning. So it's is renowned, like practice is something that is gonna make you better and better on on what you do. But some somehow we should understand also if the learning of this kind of device is just like a modern learning, like imagine you're um, learning like a sequence of movement. So this is just modern learning or it's a more general, more cognitive learning of how to operate mm. this kind of devices rather than just how to move or how to move your diaphragm or how to move your arms or how you move your toes to control them.
1: Hmm. That's very cool. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to discuss your research with us. That's really uh, an interesting topic that you've got there. I'm I'm hoping that you can, you can make bionic limbs for everybody soon. Uh, Looking forward to getting my extra limb. (laughs) Uh, So, for, for taking the time to chat with me, uh, I'd love to send you a Rational View t-shirt like this. Uh, oh, so, thank you very uh, thank much. Thank you so much. And
0: it was really lovely to talk with you. It was a very, very very, nice, uh, very, very nice chat. Thank you for hosting me.
1: If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, Please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.